Tom Gimble joins us regularly. He is the founder and CEO of the LaSalle Network, the LaSalleNetwork.com. Hey, Tom, welcome back. How have you been? I've been great, John. Happy New Year. and hope your uh, family had a great holiday season and all that good stuff. I knew you were tall, but um, I know you're tall. We've met in person before, although I usually talk to you on the phone. But you were on the Today Show the other day. And yeah. your height was the same as the combined height of the other four people that were on the stage with you. <laughs> well, I, 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 uh, be an NBA center anytime soon. So I looked a lot. I looked a lot bigger compared to him uh, than Al Roker and the rest. Um, and, but they had a bunch of panels up there, and you were sort of giving yep. uh, sort of a bullet point advice. What were you telling them? Well, I think the idea is when you're when you're looking for a job, the the first thing you have to do at the beginning of the year, we're in this New Year's resolution and getting healthy, eating healthy, are we happy, all that stuff, and 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 to really try to take the emotion out of it in your career, and and look at things a little bit differently, and be reflective, and say, you know, if you're coming out of the holidays on a low note, like a lot of people do, that they didn't have the best time that the, at the holiday season, don't let that come into your job be reflective how was the whole year all 12 months did you get promoted did you get a bonus were you given really good tasks and projects to work on how did you do what's your relationship like with your manager and your coworkers? and if those things end up more on the con side than the pros then it's time to start looking for a job and there's nothing wrong with that that's a that's a great thing to do but make a real rational decision about it don't be emotional what advice do you have for the people that think, yeah, it's time to turn the corner? Did you talk about that? Yeah, so if it's time to turn the corner, you got to think about, about how you rank the important things in your life. So we're going into a pretty interesting time now, as you and I have talked about before, that maybe everything isn't going to be work from home. And so you've got to think about what the important things are in your career. Is location a, a situation? Is remote work the number one thing? Are you willing to exchange compensation for that? Um, what's the industry you want to be in? Your relationship with management? Do you want to work for a remote manager if you're working in an office? So you've got to kind of put that bucket together of, of your wants and your needs. And then, and then you've got to treat looking for a job as a job. And that's a prioritization standpoint. So it might not be going out for dinners and happy hours and stuff with your friends after work. It may be going home from your job and settling down at your computer and really tackling this thing for three, four, five hours at a time to, to give yourself the best chance to find the role that you really need. When you apply for a job these days, do you mostly do it on a computer? You just do it online? You're not knocking on a door, you're not handing a paper resume or mailing it in. It's all pretty much online these days, right? Yeah, it, it, it's, you know, online is yesterday's fax machine and two days ago's snail mail. And so that's how you're doing it. However, there's a lot of research that goes into it. Number one, this isn't, you know, you and I graduated college. We were, we were, we were using typewriters sometimes, but definitely word processors. And we were printing stuff up and mailing it or faxing it. Today, it is, it's pushing a button, but you have the technological ability in less than 30 seconds to change a, a summary or an objective on a resume to customize something. You have the ability to write a unique cover letter for every job you apply for, and it's not time-consuming, relatively speaking. So you really should be doing those things. 
And you also want to be utilizing resources like LinkedIn because you may know somebody who works at that company who's connected to the hiring manager. So there's a decent amount of research and work that goes into applying for a job, and you really want to be thoughtful about how you, how you do it. And do you ever hear back from them? I mean, if you get the job, yes. If you get an interview, yes. What's the response rate? I, I know people who do this and get discouraged. They're online all day, applying, 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 and nothing happens. Um, can you talk yeah, about I, that? I'm a, big, I'm a big believer in empathy, John, and I think if, if you live in an apartment or a house and you get uh, something put in your mailbox saying, um, you know, we will, college painters or, or landscapers or whatever it is, do you call all those people back? and say, you know what, I don't need your services? No. No. So you're, you're applying for a job along with tens or hundreds, and in some cases thousands of other people. And so you can't really expect a company to respond to everybody that they're not interested in. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there's a legitimate issue of when you interview for a job that the company should call you back and tell you that you're done. Yeah. But I think that when you just send in a resume, you got to realize that, there's people who are mechanics applying for accountant jobs and all sorts of different things in, in, in between. And to think that a company can respond to everybody who chooses to push one button on a job application, that they're going to get a response, I think there's a lack of empathy. Is there a single most important thing that I should make sure I impress a prospective employer with? Something that needs to be on the resume? Is there some standard language that ought to be on there? Yeah, the, the, the really the most important things for, for the listeners out there, if you're, if you're applying for a job, is, number one, make sure there's no typos on a resume. Make sure everything's in the same tense. Little things can rule you out, and they're things that you can overcome right off the bat. That, that's number one. Number two is put your resume into bullet point form. Don't write a paragraph. Put it in bullet points and make sure that you articulate what you accomplished Number three is to put in some tangible things, meaning is there a percentage that you save the company money? Is there a percentage that you grew revenue? Is there a percentage that you increase digital media or, or whatever area you're in, whether it's human resources or sales or, or radio broadcasting, there's usually goals. Did you achieve your goals? And you want to put those things in. And then, and then lastly, don't lie. If you didn't graduate from college, don't put that you did. If you, if you got fired from a job, don't say that you're still there. You know, people, it's so easy to connect and find out the truths and the, and the untruths. Just be honest. It, it usually does work in your, in your favor. Including if you're running for Congress? Uh, oh God. Let me tell you, how, how, how that guy still is, is going to be part of the caucus is beyond me. And I think that that's where... You know, it's funny because we want our kids to emulate certain people. And my big question for you, John, is the days of public role models gone? Because in so many cases, it seems like I wouldn't want my kids to to be like a lot of people in the public sector. Yeah, no kidding. And it seems like every time I sort of hitch my wagon to somebody, then they end up disappointing. So I think it's best to try and be your own role model. Tom Gimbel um, is the founder and CEO of LaSalle Network, the LaSalle Network. Okay, Tom, stay in touch. We'll talk to you next week. 
Let's hear some good stuff on the next six weeks leading up to this mayoral election, John. I'm excited for it. Yeah, well, I would like to hear somebody say something positive and something constructive. This is the Wintrust Business Lunch. Ted Rossman is the senior industry analyst at Bankrate.com. Ted, welcome back to the show. It's good to be here. Thank you. Oh, end of the new year now. Um, What's the story with the amount of debt we are all carrying today? Unfortunately, it's not really a pretty picture. We see that 46% of people with credit card debt have uh, 46% of people with credit cards have debt. That's up from 39% a year ago. So more people are carrying more debt. Balances are up 15% year over year, according to the New York Fed. And rates are up, too. According to our bank rate data, which goes back to 1985, we saw rates jump more in 2022 than at any point on record. And they finished the year at a record 19.6. You also discovered that a lot of folks who carry that debt don't even know what the rate is they're paying on it, right? And that is definitely alarming. Yeah, we found 43% of people with credit card debt don't know their rates. And you really don't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. I mean, that that's an important step. I know it's not always comfortable to confront these kind of financial issues, but I think you do need to have an honest conversation with your spouse if you have one or you know, just lay it out for yourself. Here's what you owe. Here's what the rate is. And then come up with a plan. Maybe get a 0% balance transfer card. That lets you pause the interest clock for up to 21 months. Or maybe you can get a low-rate personal loan as a form of debt consolidation. Those start at about 7% if you have good credit. Or maybe nonprofit credit counseling is a good option for you. They can negotiate plans as low as about 6% over four or five years. I'm talking about agencies like Money Management International and Green Path. And the point is there are some things you can do, but you can't just bury your head in the sand. What's the average rate that people are paying these days? 19.6%, which is the highest we've seen. It started last year at 16.3. So we saw a really big jump, the largest single-year jump on record. We think soon it's going to cross 20 and probably settle somewhere between 20 and 20.5% and then stick there for a while. That's another important point that even when the Fed's done raising rates, which may come by mid-year, that doesn't mean they're going to come down anytime soon. So you have to take it upon yourself to lower your credit card rate. Pay in full if you can. If not, use some of those strategies like a balance transfer or some other form of debt consolidation to lower your personal rate. And that almost 20% you said is the average. So plenty of people are north of that then, huh? Good point. Yeah, it's the average midpoint of the range. So yeah, especially if you have a lower credit score, you could easily be paying 25 or even 30%. Some store cards in particular are in that 30% realm. Really? It really is staggering. Wow. I didn't know they were, I knew they were high. I 30% on a store card like a Macy's or Nordstrom, something like that? A number of large retailers, yeah, they have cards in that 30% area. And it just really makes me think of that adage that credit cards are like power tools. They could be really useful or they could be really dangerous. And it is roughly half and half, those who carry debt and those who don't. I mean, if you're free from credit card debt, then yeah, it's great. You get rewards, you get all these amazing benefits, but don't pay 20% interest just to get 2% cash back or airline miles. That's why it's so important if you have debt the interest rate needs to come first. Our study found that 
rewards, specifically cash back, are the favorite credit card benefit of pretty much all demographics. If you're in debt, don't chase cash back. Focus on bringing that rate down. Uh, Focus on getting the lowest rate card you can, you mean? Exactly, yeah. And that's probably going to be a 0% balance transfer card. Those are available pretty widely to new customers. You generally need a credit score of roughly 670 or above, and it's a new customer acquisition tool. I think it could be tremendously valuable. Um, There are some other options, too, like I mentioned, personal loans Mm -hmm. and credit counseling and and even just those fundamentals. Maybe you take on a side hustle or sell stuff you don't need or cut your expenses. There's plenty you can do, but I would argue with credit card rates so high, you need to make this a priority. Yeah. Um, I know someone who buys everything they buy with a credit card. I, I may know more than one person, but I'm thinking of somebody recently who traveled to Europe, and I said, oh, is that expensive? And what was the flight rate? And the person kind of shrugged and said, I just used my points. Um, and the, because they said, everything I buy, gas, chewing gum, dinner, you know, groceries, the credit card. Is that generally a good strategy if you're not carrying a balance or a big balance? As long as you're not carrying a balance, yeah, I think that's a great idea because rewards are basically free money for things that you would have bought anyway. Travel is often the most lucrative. It's also a bit more complicated. So we find that cash back has broader appeal. I mean, who couldn't use more cash, right? Um, So to each their own. I mean, you, you can definitely list some pros and cons of each. But I would say as a starting point, Something like a 2%, no annual fee, flat rate, cash back card, that's actually a great option for a lot of people, again, provided you're not carrying interest. Um, But you could lean into certain categories. You could, I have a card that gives me 6% cash back on groceries. Um, We mentioned how travel can be great, especially if you're loyal to a certain airline or hotel chain. Maybe you get their card. But only focus on rewards if you are credit card debt-free. One last thing. We have at my house uh, a a balance. That is, we have points, cash, if you will, and we haven't touched it. We're just letting it accrue. Is there any problem with letting that build up, or should you sort of use it as you go? In general, I would say redeem sooner rather than later, just because inflation could cut into the value of something like cash back. Or in the case of travel programs, a lot of times these programs will devalue their currency. Basically, they'll require more points or miles to get that free flight or free hotel stay. So usually I would say use them sooner, not later. Um, Don't just hoard them for hoarding's sake, in other words. Okay, we'll leave it there. It's always a pleasure. Ted Rossman, Senior Industry Analyst at Bankrate.com. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for having me. John Williams here. Dennis Rodkin is a residential real estate reporter at Cranes. You can read his stuff at chicagobusiness.com. And he's here today to talk about some of the marquee homes in the area that have sold lately. How are you, Dennis? I'm good, John. How are you? Good. So you finally sold your place then, huh? Nope. Marquee Rented homes? Rented it out. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Mine is one of the $5 million homes we have 2023 is 10 days old. We've already seen three sales at $5 million or more, two in the city, one in Winnetka. Um, that is, that's pretty remarkable. You and I have talked about this incredible slowdown in sales that has happened um, really throughout the market below about the $4 million, three, $4 million level, but they're still going strong up at the upper end. They don't care about interest rates. Um, they have 
money they want to put somewhere, whether it's out of the stock market from before that started to go bad or what. And so uh, at this time last year, of course, the year is very young. This time last year, there had been two sales at $5 million or more. Already this year, we're at three. And that doesn't say anything about the pace because we're only 10 days into the year. But last year, we ended up with a record 62 sales at $5 million or more. Really? Yeah. So the question will be, and that was up 30% from the year prior. Are these homes occupied most of the time by that person? Or a lot of times they have a house in, in Berlin and a house in Miami and a house in Chicago. Berlin, that was an interesting choice. I know somebody that has a house in Berlin. Huh. Um, I think for the most part, homes at this level, our highest prices are in the $20 million level. And at this level, generally, these people do own at least one other home. But for the most part, your Chicago area address is your primary address. So you may not be spending 365 days in that house, but you're very likely spending more days in that house than in any of your other real estate. You wrote today, buyers paid $5 million for a house on Dayton Street in Lincoln Park. Is that one of the, would people recognize the, the marquee street names? Oh yeah, this is on Dayton. This That's is in a that, good one. those two blocks south of Lincoln Park High School, from Lincoln Park High School south on Burling, Orchard, Howe, Dayton, that's where a lot of those multi-lot houses have been built. This is on two lots. There are houses up to six lots on that in that neighborhood. Wow. But yeah, that whole that area, the two blocks south of Lincoln Park High School on all those streets has just been nuts for really for almost 20 years. You wrote in January of 2022, LG Development unveiled its plan for a massive revamp of a Tuscan-style mansion on the lot. million was the purchase price in 2021. LG Development. So this is a developer that's fixing it up and then flipping it? This is Well, this is an interesting story. Yes, they have flipped it, but it's not finished. So this time last year, I was reporting that they had bought this. This house had been built in a Tuscan style that was very popular in the early 2000s. Bright yellow stucco, a lot of rock and, and false rock, that sort of thing. Um, so And it didn't sell when it was on the market. So this developer bought it with a plan to massively revamp it, make it a more, it's sort of a California-inspired, modern, real sleek, stucco, um, pearlescent finish and that sort of thing. And they were offering it in various ways. You could also take the lot next door, put up a put in a pool, et cetera. Well, now, a year later, they've sold it um, without that lot next door and unfinished. The developer told me this morning, uh, the developer and the listing agent both confirmed to me it was sold unfinished. So they had rolled out this big rehab. They got started. It's nowhere near done. So it's not going to look anything like it used to look. That's all gone. It's not going to look anything what like what they rolled out a year ago, because that isn't finished, this buyer who paid $5 million will be spending X number of dollars to finish it, but I don't know in what style. Who are the people generally that are buying these? You said 60-plus people last year paid more than $5 million in the area. Can you give me any generalities of who these buyers are? A lot of them are in financial industries. A lot of them are in hedge funds and, and private equity, um, although... Of course, I, I expect to see a big uh, number of sales by people at Citadel who moved to Miami, but all the other financial groups that are here um, tend to spin off a lot of cash and those people buy. But it's also, you know, lawyers who reach a point in their career, doctors who reach a point in their career. 
Um, it <laughs> Amazingly, it's not that hard to afford a $5 million house if you're in one of those professions. Do those people tend to pay cash for it or do they finance it? This was an interesting thing that was going on during the housing boom. Many people, many agents told me, the, the buyers generally don't talk to me, but the agents would say, you know, they're using mortgages now. These high-end people are using mortgages now because mortgage interest is so cheap that they can put their, other, put their money, their cash they would have spent on the house in some other vehicle and make more. So they were using mortgages more often than ever before. I, ex- I assume, though no agent has told me yet, that in this turnaround they've gone back to right. using cash. But last year you only needed to find 4% for right. your money to make sense to borrow the money. Exactly. And now you need to find six. Um, and, it, and it's an interesting sort of a question because uh, for, for most of those people, you know, they didn't need the mortgage. They have either proceeds from the stock market, a big bonus from the end of the year from their um, hedge fund or whatever it would be. They didn't need the mortgage, but they did it because it was cheaper. So what will they do in the, in the next few years as interest rates are higher? It'll be interesting to see. Are there finishes or interiors that are worth $5 million these days? I mean, you know, it's the location and it's the square footage, but is it is everybody getting granite or are they doing quartz now? <laughs> uh, I, I, I think even quartz is on its way gone. There's a lot of quartzite. Um, at that, you know, at that level, it's so personal. Um, and what's it, and from these three houses, I can't say much because one is a 1960s colonial that I suspect, but nobody will talk to me. I suspect it's going to be torn down. That's on the lakefront in, um, uh, Winnetka. This one, as I said, this one we were just talking about is a house being rebuilt. Uh, and the third is a condo. So, uh, it's hard to say what people at that end are doing, but the one thing they do do is they dump, you know, they don't have to think, oh, they don't have to read the articles on three upgrades that will help sell your house, make sure the bathroom has furniture look vanities or anything like that. They just do what they want because then when the next wealthy person comes in, they're going to want their own doesn't matter well. anyway. Yeah. A $5 million condo. So I presume that's around here where we're sitting right now somewhere? Yeah, it was... Um, Is it Trump or, or St. Regis or something? Uh, well, it, it's a condo, but it's it, technically it's a co-op. It's at the um, on Lakeshore Drive, 1500 Lakeshore, which is one of those super fabulous co-op buildings built in the 20s. Very high... People like um, Armors and Wrigley's lived there. I don't know who the seller of this one was, but this was a... Um, this is just an absolutely beautiful condo with, mm. with a lot of historical finishes that I think are from the origins of the building. Beautiful paneling, black floors. What's the cross street on that? If you're at Lakeshore Drive, uh, fifteen hundred. Well, it would be below North. Is fifteen hundred Gothi? I'm not sure. It would be so somewhere north of the S. Well, not the old S curve, uh, Oak Street Beach. Yeah. But south of north, yeah, in that area, right in there. Uh, I'm gonna look over my shoulders. I'm heading north today, and yeah, you can't miss it. it it's a beautiful old building. I, what is it? Twenty stories, and it sort of comes around the the corner with a curve. Yeah, it's a great old building. It was by uh, Rosario Candela, who was a New York architect of all the super high end co ops on. Uh, Central Park in New York, and a bunch of wealthy people in Chicago brought him at brought him out. At that time, what you would do is let's all build a building together, and I'm going to take 30 percent of it, and you want 15 percent of it, and somebody else wants 12, and he puts all that together and designs a beautiful building huh. with that much space for all of you, and it's the only one. So it's our most New Yorky co-op building. The headlines of some of your other stories this uh, year include Lewis Sullivan. 
and the People with Disabilities lawsuit. I want you to talk to me a little bit about that and this house in Wilmette as well. We're visiting with Dennis Rodkin. He writes about real estate at Cranes, ChicagoBusiness.com. More business news here, though, with Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. Chicago-based Oak Street Health is reportedly a target of acquisition by CVS Health. Oak Street runs primary care centers for Medicare recipients. Bloomberg reports the possible deal values Oak Street at more than $10 billion. Talks between the companies are ongoing, and there's a possibility they could end without a deal. Oak Street has 169 health centers across the country that provides care for nearly 160,000 patients. CVS, like Deerfield-based Walgreens, have both been expanding from drugstore operators to health care providers. Chicago's hometown airline has moved up in the rankings of on-time performance. United Airlines moved to 8th from 13th, with 79.2% of its flights being on-time. The data from aviation researcher OAG shows Delta in first place, followed by Alaska Airlines, then United, American, Hawaiian, Spirit, and Southwest Airlines. Figures cover flights in 2022. OAG defines on-time performance as flights that arrive or depart within 15 minutes of their scheduled arrival or departure times. Delta's on-time performance came in at 81.8%. American had a 77% completion rate. Southwest had a 71.6% on-time rating. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. And with the business of food, here's Steve Alexander. Yes, and we're talking heavy metal today. No, no, not that kind of heavy metal. Today, as we celebrate National Bittersweet Chocolate Day, the Hershey Company and Trader Joe's are facing class action lawsuits because of the levels of lead and cadmium in their dark chocolate products. And we have a fresh reminder today that there are heavy metals in baby food. Right after we thank the Chevy Silverado HD for sponsoring us. Experience life in HD, visit ChevyDriveChicago.com. Okay, heavy metals and baby food, sir? My name's Gary Harkai. I'm an investigative journalist with Bloomberg Wall. Yeah, we've heard this story before. And Gary's article at Bloomberg.com shares new research done by Bloomberg Law, which purchased 33 products made by nine companies and mailed them to a laboratory to be tested for heavy metals. And what we found was essentially that we could find lead, arsenic, and cadmium in all but one of those foods. And had Congress passed a bill limiting the amounts of heavy metals in baby food when it had the chance in 2019 and again in 2021. These would have been over that limit. Limiting them is an option. Getting rid of them is not. They're everywhere. Sweet potatoes and rice have these elements in them just in in, in the basic product. There's no way at this point to eliminate all heavy metals in your food. But regulations do work, as we saw after the EPA, FDA, and others cracked down years ago on the use of lead in all sorts of products. But when it comes to baby food... It seems to become a priority for the FDA, I've been told, when people pay attention to it. And he says this is important. The food that has the most arsenic rice. Yeah, rice is is one of the big problems because of the inorganic arsenic that it absorbs from the water that it is grown in. Great. I'm just thinking about all of the rice pudding and such we fed to our babies. So what are parents supposed to do? Parents shouldn't necessarily, you know, freak out about this. The idea would be to keep things in moderation, limit rice products substantially, wash fresh fruits and vegetables, and you're probably going to be okay. And educate yourself. You can read Gary Harkai's article at WGNRadio.com, and it includes several tips from experts on how to limit your baby's exposure. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. Uh, What's this story about the people with disabilities in Chicago? What's that story? 
You know, this is an interesting lawsuit that's been going on for several years. The reason to talk about it now is that they've just finished discovery and they have a hearing coming up. Access Living uh, is a disability rights organization in Chicago. And for several years, they have been pursuing City Hall over inspections, basically. Um, Federal law requires that homes that are, uh, I shouldn't say advertised because they're uh, in many cases city owned, but homes that are described as affordable and available to people with disabilities need to be um, inspected for certain things like universal access to bath rooms and no step into the shower, that sort sort of thing. And what Access Living has been claiming and now says, now shows that in discovery, the city admitted is that the city does not do that. The city simply does not inspect for disability access, even though it does inspect these units for other things. Um, and so there's a lawsuit where the where Access Living is trying to get the city to come into compliance. And, Does the uh, city own these properties? Many, Most are city-owned. There are also some that are owned separately and managed. It, it, there are many ways that affordable housing for disabled like people Section is involved. Like Section 8 stuff, that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. And so several disabled people um, said in uh, attachments to the lawsuit, essentially, I can't find housing because this is advertised as disabled access and I get there and I can't turn my wheelchair around mm. or there's nowhere to put my chair inside the apartment. That's that kind of thing. And so one of Access Living's concerns is affordable housing has been a major thrust of the Lightfoot administration, yet the light, th- these problems date back well before Lightfoot. The, this organization says they date back as far as the 1980s, but um, the Lightfoot administration has made access, uh, has made affordable housing a very important priority, but according to Access Living in this lawsuit, hasn't changed the practice of, of just not bothering to check for disabled access when inspecting these, um, these units. Well, city inspectors are usually ball busters, I thought. They would write that up right away. I wonder if it's because of the ownership of the property, the city wants them to look the other way because... They don't want to take the time or money to fix it or resolve it. Unfortunately, the city would not comment for this. It's ongoing litigation. There's a hearing on the 14th, which is in a few days, um, and I may be able to attend that. City would not comment, so all I know is what shows up in the legal documents, what Access Living uh, and what Access Living people would say to me. And so we don't know why this pattern exists, but it's a pretty clearly documented pattern. And as I said, uh, in discovery for the case, the city essentially admitted, yes, that is what we, or yes, that is what we don't do. We don't inspect. Here's a headline. Lewis Sullivan's last work, an architectural treasure is for rent. And I thought, oh, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I guess it depends. It's a bad thing for the owners because they have been trying for about three years to sell it. They had a price of about two point nine million on it. This is a private residence. Uh, it's it's a re- it's a rental unit upstairs and business space downstairs could be used in many ways. They bought it, uh, I think, about two thousand eight to rehab it. Only the facade is by Sullivan. The building was by another architect who hired brought in Sullivan to do the facade. And anybody who's seen it in the forty six hundred block of Lincoln Avenue knows it's spectacular. It's this green terracotta. It's got a giant key standing up on the facade with the letter K on it because it was originally the Krauss Music Store. Beautiful display window that looks 
just looks like um, uh, it looks cinematic the way this display window is set up for your your wares. So they came in in 2008 um, and they rehabbed the business, the, the first floor as their offices for their marketing design firm and upstairs is, a, is an apartment. They put it on the market right before COVID at about 2.9 million. They haven't been able to sell it. So now they've put it up for rent. So that's not good news for them that they weren't able to sell it. But uh, it's a it's absolutely a spectacular building. Anybody who hasn't seen it ought to go right to the 4600 block of Lincoln Avenue and take a look. And then the rental would be on the business downstairs or on the residential upstairs? Uh, it would be the main floor, the business space, and there's also some business space in the basement. The apartment is rented for the next two years, so it has some guaranteed income for them. Um, and, you know, I, I think everybody hopes they get this space filled because they have been great stewards of this building. They yeah, really did a nice yeah, rehab. Yeah. And it's one of it truly is a treasure of Chicago architecture. But it's the first floor is unoccupied at this point. If you're driving around, punch in 4611 North Lincoln Avenue, 4611 North Lincoln Avenue. And also punch in Cranes Chicago. Uh, that would be chicagobusiness.com where Dennis Rodkin is the residential real estate reporter. Okay, Dennis, thanks for coming in. Thanks, John.